And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. My name is Maggie. And I am Harmony. And this week we're talking about the essay, I Am an Anarchist by Lucy Parsons, or the speech that was turned into an essay by Lucy Parsons, which was given in 1886. Going to do a little woman in anarchism situation. And also it's February 25th, 2022, as we're recording this. So we have to talk about the fact that there is a war going on, a really big one, a new one that's happening. So that's what you can expect from this week's episode of RGBC. Apparently Maggie has bigger plans to talk about this than I do. I was just going to casually mention it (laughs) as we get in. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Lucy Parsons, though. I've got some biographical facts that I've pulled up from one of her. It's actually, I should turn my heater off. It's actually her first in-depth biography by Jacqueline Jones, and it's called Goddess of Anarchy. So I read part of this biography back in the summer, and then the library took it away from me because I was taking too long. But here we go. So Lucy Parsons, she was a badass. She was born around 1851 into slavery in Virginia to a Black mother and white father. But this is kind of new information for us because Lucy Parsons told everyone throughout her life and career that she was half Mexican and half indigenous. There's some speculation as to why she did that, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So after the Civil War, her family moved to Waco, Texas, where she first met her first husband, a formerly enslaved man named Oliver Benton. And then at about 1869, she met Albert Parsons, who was a white man who had formerly served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. After the Civil War, he decided that he was a radical Republican and vehemently opposed slavery. So he met Lucy Parsons and they had an affair. And then in 1872, they decided to get married This would have been because marriages probably weren't very official for Black couples back in Texas during this time. So they probably, she probably wasn't legally married to Oliver Benton, but it was still seen as a real marriage. And he apparently had a lot of feelings about her leaving him. And that is unfortunate. Yeah, she started an interracial marriage. This was before interracial marriage was banned in Texas, but the Ku Klux Klan was not too happy about it regardless. And Lucy Parsons, no matter what she claimed her ethnicity was, did not look white in the typical way that we think of white. So they eventually ended up moving to Chicago in 1873 because of the social pressure. So in Chicago is where she started a lot of her activism work. 
She's a famous anarchist. She gave these really incredible speeches. She also started the Freedom Press after her husband died. It was a newspaper and it addressed issues such as labor organizations, lynching, and Black pinage in the South. That being said, in terms of race, Lucy Parsons spoke very little about it publicly. She was even described as she had antipathy towards the Black plight and didn't really speak publicly about it. She talked a lot about the working class, though. Personally, as somebody who hasn't studied Lucy Parsons all that well, I imagine that maybe part of this was because it was hard enough being a woman of color who publicly spoke about anarchism and labor movements. But there was also a fear going on during that time period, specifically with anarchists, where anarchists would get sent back to their home countries if they weren't viewed as being native-born. So I think that may have contributed too as to why she claimed that she was Mexican descent because then she would have been born in Texas. And there were a lot of anarchist organizers at that time who were being sent back home to their ethnic origin countries. I mean, she was also married to a white man. That probably wasn't helpful either. One of the cool things about Lucy and Albert's relationship was that they were both seen as equals, and they both treated each other as equals. They officially outed themselves as anarchists after 1877 during what was known as the Great Strike, and they both supported violent means for ending state oppression. He was a part of the Knights of Labor, the Workers' Party of the United States, and the Socialist Labor Party, and she was a part of the Working Women's Union. In 1886, Albert was arrested in association with the Haymarket bombings, which was due to a union strike in Chicago. A police officer died and a lot of anarchist organizers were arrested. And the next year, he was actually killed. He was lynched. After that, Lucy really stepped into the central prominent figure role of their 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 relationship, I guess, and started advocating a lot more publicly and frequently for the anarchist movement. And for she she started talking about the wrongdoings that happened with her husband during the Haymarket bombings. And that's kind of what this speech is about. It talks a lot about freedom of speech. This happened in 1886, so this was right after her husband would have been arrested. And it talks about how anarchists need to have a space within the U.S. political sphere and are within their legal rights according to the Constitution. Maggie, having read this speech, do you have any major takeaways? I was actually really struck by the fact that she, there was, I think, a really big parallel between this speech and the first episode that we did on anarchism, our indigenous anarchism episode, in which Lucy Parsons even begins... There are so many stereotypes about what people imagine anarchists to be, who they imagine we are, that we, she almost describes them, the the fear of anarchism as the boogeyman under the bed, so to speak, right? And she has this really powerful line sort of towards the beginning of, of the speech where she talks about how Webster gives the term two definitions, chaos and the state of being without political rule. We cling to the latter definition. Our enemies hold that we believe only in the former. And to me, that just so set the tone for the rest of her speech. 
because she really has to toe the line between the fact that she's obviously not opposed in the speech to violent protests and things like that when they're appropriate and when they're necessary, but also the styling by the press of and by the police of the bombing that's in question at this time makes it seem like the everybody was there to to specifically attack the police to murder people and to essentially just cause chaos. So a lot of the work that Parsons does here is navigate that in-between space, right? Between wanting to be people without ruling and chaos. And what does that look like in practice when everybody is trying to style you as being murderers and massacres? While also, she also really smartly points out when the opposition, when police shoot and kill people, it's not seen as murder in the same way. It's not talked about in the same way. And all of that put together really just makes one feel like nothing has changed because this speech happened in 1886. But you could have told me that somebody said this three weeks ago and I would have totally believed it. Yeah, reading this, it reminded me a lot of the George Floyd protests and the fact that people who were throwing Molotov cocktails supposedly at police cars or throwing bricks or even water bottles were imprisoned and jailed and had bail fines for millions of dollars. <laughs> and meanwhile, we see police every day get off with killing people. That really struck me as well. Part of the reason I wanted to look at this speech today is because, as Maggie talked about a little bit earlier, we are now in a war. I mean, we're not in a war yet, <laughs> but there is a war going on as there are all over the war world, but there is a new war going on in terms of Ukraine and Russia. And in my day job, one of my day jobs, what I'm doing right now is trying to find resources for students to look at that help them get updates about this war. And so in my work, in that curation work, what I'm trying to do is have students think about who is telling these narratives, because we here in the U.S. have a lot of stake in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. We don't like Russia. We want to use Ukraine as a base. And so I'm trying to get students to think about looking at narratives from other countries and to also think about what these other countries, what stake they might have in this conflict. So part of this, this speech was interesting to me because even today, anarchists are still vilified, even though we do have more information about it. Recently, in June or July, President Biden came up with a national defense statement, and in it he named, I think it was extreme violent anarchists as being a domestic threat. And in that language, he also named a bunch of movements that anarchist groups traditionally focus on, leftist anarchist groups like anti-capitalism, like environmentalism. I will say that within this statement, it also talked about how violent philosophies, you could have these philosophies and hold violent philosophies as long as you didn't act on them. But the statement itself was weirdly worded, and it's not made into law, but it's still something that could be used to turn against leftist groups. And even today, one of the sources I use to show my students a little bit about context within the Ukrainian-Russian conflict is the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is widely known as a centrist 
defense strategy and defense policy think tank names anarchists as a domestic threat. Not the most important domestic threat, but still a domestic threat. So what I wanted to do while looking at this essay was question these dominant narratives that we have that make us think when we hear the word anarchist, oh my god, that's something scary, that's something violent. And as we've seen throughout history, it's not like violence from people who have called themselves anarchists hasn't occurred. And I mean violence beyond property, because that's usually when we think of anarchist violence, I would say the most prominent anarchistic violence has been against property rather than people. But there have still been people killed from anarchistic violence. And those narratives are twisted to define the entire movement. And it's because, as it says in the Center for Strategic and International Studies report by Grace Huang, as it says there, anarchists are opposed to government. We're opposed to the U.S. government in its current form. And that threatens people. That threatens dominance and that threatens power. And so during things like the Haymarket bombings, which was blown out of proportion. A policeman died, but then a lot of anarchists had to suffer because of it. We see that narrative twisted and we see this group of people vilified, even though they're the more oppressed people, because they threaten, not because they're doing anything necessarily evil or violent, but because their ideology is a it's a threat to state power. Okay, I think I'm good now. Maggie? <laughs> Yeah, and Parsons talks about that really explicitly in this speech, too, because she also mentions the fact that other acts of violence against property specifically that kind of followed the bombing were assigned to this same anarchist group. And Parsons then has to talk about that difference. And I, she makes almost a joke, but a serious statement about the fact that anarchists essentially wouldn't be fools like that. That's not actually an anarchistic action what had happened it was like throwing of bricks at a judicial building or or something and so she talks about the ways in which i think our stereotypes snowball and rewrite the narrative of actions and something else that i was thinking of too is also just kind of thinking about what's happening right now in the world specifically with russia invading ukraine even if you feel like you are getting accurate information from whatever news source or whatever you're you're watching from right now it's always or at least all of the sources i've seen for the most part especially in mainstream media there's always an us versus them mentality right and there's always as well a virtue signaling aspect of which the news source that we're reading from in the united states often positions itself as being about freedom of press and we can say whatever we want and we have the accurate information because we have all of these rights and liberties and people in Russia don't. So they don't know what's happening and they don't have access to all of this stuff. And so there's always, always, always this deep-seated, deep-leveled moral hierarchy of us versus them and everything that's being reported about this. And I think that whether you're looking at anarchism or you're looking about news about Russia and Ukraine, it's also equally important to reflect on yourself and your own biases when you're looking at news media like this and really try and dig in what have I been societally conditioned to think about all of these things. Because if you can't start there and recognize what you've been taught and conditioned through the years, not in a classroom, but just through passively consuming media your whole life, 
you're, it's going to be way harder to zoom out and see the full picture. And I don't say this to say that I've got it figured out and I do all of this perfectly because I definitely don't. And I'm sure that there's plenty of mistakes that I make in looking at biases. I mean, I myself, I think, you know, with anarchism specifically, really trying to break myself of the idea that it is all chaos and, and insanity and violence, because that is the media culture that I was raised in. And I've had to do a lot of work to kind of unlearn that. But to me, that just feels like a really important step one that Parsons calls out as as something that one must do. And it just feels more relevant today than ever as news media just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Okay. One line I wanted to know your take on was Parsons says, quote, suppose that bomb had been thrown by an anarchist. The Constitution says there are certain inalienable rights, among which are free press, free speech, and free assemblage. The citizens of this great land are given by the Constitution the right to repel the unlawful invasion of those rights. The meeting at Haymarket Square was a peaceable meeting. Suppose when an anarchist saw the police arrive on the scene with murder in their eyes, determined to break up that meeting. Suppose he had thrown that bomb. He would have violated no law. What do you think about that line there? I feel like that's the crux of a lot of contemporary politics today about a whole host of things. To me, gun control comes to mind about this tension between the fact that it's written in our constitution that individuals have the rights to defend their rights that are as written in the constitution versus the state, which in actuality does not let you uphold like you're given no path to actually exercise that constitutional right in a way that is quote unquote legal, if that makes sense. But it is supposed to be legal, right? We yeah. are supposed to be able to defend ourselves. And that's why we're right. That's why we have the right to bear arms is so that if the state comes calling, we're supposed to be able to defend ourselves, as you pointed out with the gun control arguments. Can you see that line in particular? Like, did that strike for you when we're talking about implicit biases? Did it strike for you as sort of, oh, but she is violent sort of reaction when you first read it? Because it did for me, where I was like, oh, she's talking about peace, but now she's saying that it's completely fine to throw the bomb. But it takes some unpacking to give into that context, right? Yeah. I don't know if it surprised me necessarily. I noted it as a line of interest, but to me, I don't know, it just felt like it made sense. And maybe it's because I spent so long thinking about that tension and gun control of we have this overarching right, but because of a whole host of laws that are sort of under that, actually exercising that right in a way that is, again, quote unquote, legal, is very, very complicated and strange. And in our current context, has a lot of double entendres and nuances and biases to it that people hold these very contradictory beliefs about it. That to me, I kind of was just go with the flow with it. But because it, it does make sense to me, right? At the end of the day, I think she's right. So I think that that's why I didn't raise that much of a flag to me, because I, I just agree with what she had to say there. Okay. Do you have any other thoughts about the speech? I'm curious to know, because you you came into this affair, Maggie was like, are we going to talk about Russia and Ukraine? So I'm curious to know if you can draw more parallels. Oh, to the speech specifically? Yeah. I don't know. I guess the most tenuous connection I could maybe make is how violence is so contextualized in our society and it's very moralized in terms of this is good because we say it's good and this is bad because we say it's bad 
citizens who haven't been trained at all in Ukraine right now are currently being called up to fight for their country and fight for their rights. And a very brave act of defense of democracy in Ukraine. I don't want to make it seem like I'm bashing that by any means. But it is interesting to me how when in a context like this, people arm themselves in sort of the same way to defend the rights as they see them as, as put out in the United States' constitution, that's then moral because it's against, or immoral because it's against the state. But I don't know that I really want to go too far down that kind of pairing contrast in morality when people are, are arming themselves and fighting and dying in Ukraine as we speak at, at the moment. I understand. I think for me reading this speech during this time, and I'm not sure this is going, this isn't going to be very eloquent, but I think for me reading this, one of the things that I couldn't help thinking about was the fact that now that we're going to demonize Russia even more, and we do know that Russia has all of these disinformation campaigns going on, we know that he's infiltrated, quote unquote, far left groups, not he. We know that Putin's disinformation campaigns have infiltrated, quote unquote, far left groups. I'm wondering if we'll see more, even more pushback to the radical left, which has been growing as a movement in the U.S. as of late. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we will see more policing of that than we already do, because we see it in protests, but I don't see a lot of documented public information of leftists getting arrested for no reason or being put on FBI lists in the ways that they were in, say, the 1970s during the Weather Underground and the New Left movement. Those are my thoughts <laughs> in connection to Russia. I'm wondering if this is going to get even worse. I mean, I think probably yes. I think that I don't know. I think that I'm having a weird time. And I always do when acts of war are so heavily publicized in the news and therefore come back into the sphere of things that I think about every single day. Because, of course, war is happening in many countries in the world right now. And because it's happening to brown people and people that the West have decided are essentially irrelevant, even though that's a fucked up ideology to have, isn't something that we're thinking about all the time. I think that I always have like, I'm always concerned about what that effect will be on information and, and politics here. And then I always feel like a really bad person for it when I know that people are being bombed actively. And I'm sitting here like, I wonder how this is going to affect my political landscape. And I know that those things are tied together and relevant. But I just as a human have a really hard time holding both of those thoughts in my head simultaneously. <laughs> so I don't think I have anything intelligent to say to what you just said, except for the fact that I think you're probably right. And I'm having a hard time holding that in my head simultaneously what's happening. I understand. In terms of Russia and Ukraine, do you have any other thoughts that you wanted to talk about on air? Because I don't know that much about the situation, but as a librarian, that's all I know is that I have to help with the information landscape and make sure that we're getting okay information and that we're questioning it. Yeah, I don't know that I actually have that much more to share. I really only ask beforehand because when other major armed conflicts have happened in the past, we've done a little bit of a deeper dive on them. So I didn't know where we were prepared to go today. But I do think that what you just said is really important. I mean, you have to be suspect, I think, of every piece of media that you that you take in. You have to be examining your biases. But I think especially in the United States, if you're a citizen of the United States, 
because Russia is involved, there's like even more levels of information parsing you've got to be doing and thinking about here. But then also at the same time, I, as a person, I stand with Ukraine, right? I, I support their right to be a sovereign nation and not be invaded by Russia. So by saying that I want you to examine the pieces of media, I'm not trying to say that what Russia's doing is right. I'm just saying, gotta. there's a lot of nuance that you need to parse through for, for yourself when you're engaging with this media. Yeah. I think after we read this essay, that was part of what I was trying to articulate when we're talking about the fact that yeah, there are anarchists out there that have done bad things. There was an anarchist man that assassinated a president. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess just stay tuned, keep questioning things. And also, I want to talk a little bit about direct action, even though that doesn't super relate to this essay. But this is a thought that originates within anarchist ideology, but is also used by a lot of the left. And it's all about putting action where we need it most and how we do that. It's where the idea of mutual aid stems from, mutual aid being something that, as Dean Spade, who just wrote a book about mutual aid in 2020, he all should read it, talks about mutual aid being something that serves where institutions don't serve. So during COVID, we saw a lot of mutual aid efforts because the government was not prepared or willing to step up right away and help all of these populations that were affected by the COVID pandemic. And so communities came together and started mutual aid funds. So that would be something that is direct action. And that's something I'm thinking a lot about today. How do we do direct action? I'm not a violent person. So even if I believed and violent means for disrupting oppressive forces within our government or disrupting the government as a whole, I'm probably not going to be the one doing that because I have trouble, you know, jaywalking. So, (laughs) but what would direct action look like in my everyday life, right? How can I do that in the ways that I can bring things to the revolution with my skill sets? That might look like pushing institutions in smaller ways, just doing the things, right? If your workforce has a policy that you feel is oppressive to a certain subsect of people, you can stand up against that maybe by simply going against it. Like it's just a policy. What are they going to do? Are they going to fire you? Maybe you talk to other people within your job and you start some sort of collective action that way, even informally. And so I guess as we're thinking about the U.S. government and what we're going to do, let's think about ways that we can impose direct action, even if it's small. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big step because even these small things do contribute to a larger force. And the more that we talk about it and the more that we do those things, the more likely we are to actually upturn the government. So that's it. That's all I have to say. I was not eloquent today. (laughs) Me either. No, I think what you just said, though, is really interesting and really important, too, because I think that you and I, even on the podcast, often talk about the fact that there's so much injustice and there's so much bad, there's just so much bad shit happening in the world all the time that it feels really difficult to mentally contend with all of it at once and feel like you're doing things to help it all at once. And I think that sometimes it's useful to be reminded that small steps matter and small steps add up when they're direct action. But also, I don't know, I think of the system of hierarchy almost like a Jenga tower sometimes. And it's 
as long as you're knocking down a piece of the, yeah, you know, like as long as you're pulling out a piece of it, the tower, eventually the structure is going to fall. Right. And it's okay if maybe you have to focus for right now on pulling out your one piece of the Jenga of the Jenga tower, because as long as everybody else is too, we're going to start seeing change. Big change is really desirable, but big change is ultimately made up of a lot of, of a lot of people doing small things that all kind of come together simultaneously. So those are my thoughts. I also wasn't very eloquent today. If you haven't actually read the Lucy Parsons, I am an, uh, I am an anarchist speech before you read this episode. It's pretty short and it's really powerful and it's really, really relevant. And it's free to access. Yeah. Through blackpast.org, which is a really great historical resource that's free to use at all times. But if you can donate to them, you should, because they're doing really great work. So those are my thoughts. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) All right. I have nothing else intelligent to say about Lucy Parsons, except I want to go and read the rest of her Goddess of Anarchy biography. She's a badass. She has a bunch of speeches. We could have chosen a bunch of different speeches. I chose this one, even though we didn't have much to say about it, because I wanted to talk about the way that policing works a little bit. Y'all should read it, and you should read other things that she wrote or said. What are you reading, Harmony? Oh, that's right. We do that still. (laughs) Well, I am reading... What am I reading? Runaway Princess by Alyssa Cole, I think, or it's How to Catch a Runaway Princess. I think that's the main book. I'm reading other books, but that's where my focus has been thus far. And Teaching to Transgress still. What about you, Maggie? I'm not reading anything right now because last night I finished You Reach Sam by Dustin Tao and that fucked me up. That was one of the saddest young adult level books I've ever read in my entire life. I cried so much afterwards. There was a book you mentioned last time we talked that sounded interesting and that I wanted, I want to know your take on. What, what, what books were you reading before that? Uh, I was reading A Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark and I don't know, I don't remember. <laughs> have to go back and listen all right i have to go i have to go look (laughs) all right i think that's it for now folks i'm tired maggie's tired let's hope world war three doesn't happen i don't have any intelligent thoughts about it because i don't know global policy all that well seems complicated (laughs) all right have a great day oh wait what are we doing next week (laughs) oh shit is it is it this? Oh, uh, oh yeah. Uh, next week we have a really exciting author interview. If you've listened to the past couple of episodes, you'll know for the past month Harmony's been working her way through a book she wouldn't tell you about. But we can now officially tell you that we had the wonderful opportunity to interview Karen Joy Fowler on her upcoming release booth, which is coming out March eighth. Find it wherever you buy books. Yeah, it's a nice continuation into our talking about narratives and dominant narratives. So that's all Mm -hmm. we'll say for now. All right, that's it, folks. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club 
on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.